Hello and welcome to High Heels and Heartache. I'm your host, Kendall Ann Bird. Thank you so much for joining me for the podcast today. Today's episode is all about narcissists. Dr. Eleanor Greenberg is on the show today, and Dr. Greenberg travels the globe teaching therapists how to counsel not only people in relationships with narcissists, but narcissists themselves. And Dr. Greenberg answers a lot of questions that I've had about narcissists and gave me a lot of really interesting information that I'm super pumped for you to hear. But before I get to that, I just wanted to give a shout out to every single one of you for listening. Um, It's really an honor to be part of your survivor journey. Uh, High Heels and Heartache has been downloaded in 11 countries, and that just really means the world to me that you will open up yourselves to, uh, to let me and the podcast be part of your healing. So coming right up without further ado... Dr. Eleanor Greenberg teaches us all about narcissists. Hello, and welcome back to High Heels and Heartache. Today, I have Dr. Eleanor Greenberg with me. Thanks so much for joining me, Dr. Greenberg. Thank you for inviting me, Kendall Ann. Well, I am so pumped to have you today because you're, you just have like such awesome credentials. I was actually shocked when you said, sure, I'll be on the podcast. I did a little dance in my living room um, when I read your email. So I'm just going to talk about you for just one second. So you are actually an internationally renowned gestalt therapist, and you specialize in the diagnosis of and treatment of borderline narcissistic and schizoid personality adaptations. You are the author of a book um, called Borderline Narcissistic and Schizoid Adaptations, The Pursuit of Love, Admiration, and Safety, which is available on amazon.com. You also have a free online blog called Understanding Narcissism on Psychology Today, and you have over 1,000 posts on these topics on Quora.com. You travel the globe teaching other therapists about these topics. And I have all of the links to the things that I just mentioned in the show notes. So for the listeners, if they want to check you out, they can just go visit there and and look up some of your resources. And I, I just want to mention in our previous conversations, one thing that I love about you so much is that you provide all of these different resources at different monetary levels so that even if you don't live where you live and can afford to come sit down and and chat with you, you could still check out your free resources on Psychology Today or Quora, or even if you have a little bit of money, you could buy your book. So I just wanted to thank you in advance for that because that just makes me love you so much that you have resources available for everybody. Yes, I really believe that this knowledge should be widespread and it shouldn't be the property of only the people who can afford to come to therapists, which are very few and far between, who understand it. And I like to put it in plain English with practical examples because a lot of the literature on these topics, if they're written by a professional, is being written for other professionals with lots and lots of jargon. And they're kind of boring to read, truthfully. 
I read them. <laughs> I took a vow. I'm going to be interesting. <laughs> well, I love your stuff. I think it's definitely very interesting. So let's just start off with kind of a basic question, which is we hear about narcissism and narcissists all the time. And one question that those of us who aren't trained in narcissism don't know is, aren't we all kind of narcissistic? Yes, the first thing I would like to do is, in English, we use the same word for a number of different concepts, and there's health, so I will use the word narcissism, but I'll distinguish between healthy narcissism, which is a legitimate investment in the self that makes you take care of yourself, care about what happens to you, and it also includes the pride that comes for overcoming obstacles. So it's based on reality, and it is um, self-care and self-love, really. Okay. The difference is defensive narcissism isn't about that at all. It's about growing up in a family where the coin of the realm was being special or being devalued as worthless. And the child grows up with their self-esteem feeling very conditional. When I achieve and people admire me, I feel worthwhile. When people don't, I feel worthless. And the apparent confidence of people with narcissistic disorders is not really based on anything underlying. It's like a helium balloon, which is why they take offense so easily, because one little tiny trivial pinprick to a helium balloon deflates it. So if you have healthy narcissism, you can accept that you're not going to get the best table at a restaurant and not have a fit over it. You can accept that you're not always going to come first in everybody's book and you're not going to personalize it. But if you have defensive narcissism, you're going to be very easily defended. Now, I'd like to offended by people and your defenses will come up. So what you're saying is, is that sometimes we view narcissists as maybe being like arrogant and overconfident, but it's kind of the opposite. Yes. One of the things to know that's a really important concept, and I apologize for the names of these concepts in advance. I didn't name them. But if, you, if I had to teach you anything about how to understand the narcissist in your life, it would be this one thing. Okay? So bear with me. I'm ready. I, spent, I traveled the world and went to many teachers trying to find where is the line between just having some narcissistic traits like being self-centered, talking too much, wanting to show off, and having a narcissistic personality disorder. And I found the answer from the object relations theorists. And they define two terms that are very relevant to everybody listening. So I'm going to put them in plain English. If your mate has whole object relations, they relate to you in a very stable way. They can see your good and bad qualities, and they can accept you warts and all. Therefore, if they don't have whole object relations, they can they separate the good from the bad, and they either see you as all good and perfect or all bad. Now, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with being seen as all good? Well, none of us are. 
that means they're going to flip on you the minute okay. a flaw. So someone that has, who is a defensive narciss- narcissist, they can't see you as like, mostly you have good traits. You have some of these things that aren't so great, but mostly you have good traits. Someone who has defensive narcissism sees you as you are either perfect or bad. Exactly. And even worse, we're all going to know how much we love the person we're with. There's going to be an occasional disagreement, disappointment, or hurt, or anger. If you do not have whole object relations, you don't have object constancy. Now, what does that mean? That means, let's say you and I are in a relationship of friendship, because this goes for friends, it goes for parents, it goes for lovers. If I don't have object constancy, imagine you're holding one end of a rope and I'm holding the other. And as long as we're both holding the rope, we're in relationship and the, feel, the good feelings can flow up and down the rope. But if I don't have object constancy, the minute you do something that annoys me, hurts me, disappoints me, angers me, I drop my end of the rope. And oh, You see? And you are the enemy then. We are no longer connected by any positive feelings. And any positive, the weird thing about it is the entire history of our positive feelings and our the things you've done for me are gone in that moment, which is- Everything just gets erased. It all gets erased and becomes background. And just how the narcissist feels in that moment is figural for them, foreground, and they act based on that current feeling and only that current feeling. And that is the single most cause, biggest cause in my mind of abusive relationships. Okay, so let me just kind of go back over that so I can be sure that I have it straight in my mind. So someone with defensive narcissism, they either see you as all good and all bad. And when you are in the all bad phase, it's not like they love you, but they don't like you at that second. They don't love you. That, that's right. Lost. They, they basically have two, defend, two defensive selves really going. And the real self that the rest of us has is underdeveloped in them. They have the part of them that feels special that's exaggerated. It's grandiose, or it's, if it's not expressed in a grandiose way, the fantasies are very grandiose about the self. And the other side is afraid they're worthless, and they're going to be exposed as worthless. So they just keep switching back and forth. And when you disagree with them, they're in danger of feeling worthless, so they attack you. Got you, because they can't see something as just something small, like like you said before, they didn't get the best table at the restaurant. To them, that's as bad as doing the worst thing to them because they have such exactly. like, so fragile confidence. Very, very fragile while boasting. So here they are boasting to you about who they know and what they've done. And that's an exhibitionist narcissist. There are three different types of narcissists. I could talk about. Most people are referring to the exhibitionist when they're describing the boastful, I want to be the center of attention kind of person. Mm. But there are other ways to be a narcissist besides that. 
And another thing that you put in one of your blogs that I thought was was really interesting is you were saying that they have that narcissists have a disproportionate anger to the things that they view as slights. That's right. They are because they have they don't have whole object relations to you. They don't have it towards themselves. They're always feeling endangered that any slight and I go back to the helium balloon. You can have a small pinprick or you can take a hammer to the helium balloon. It's all going to result in deflating the helium balloon. So if you think of their confidence as a helium balloon, the smallest thing you say, the most innocent that wouldn't bother someone else, can set off a huge fight with someone. And I'm using narcissist for shorthand. No disrespect is intended. I have many lovely narcissist friends and family members and colleagues and clients. And it's short for someone who made an adaptation in childhood. An innocent child was born into a family that the best way to get love and attention was to become narcissistic. And that's the best they could do. But now that particular adaptation and all the behaviors that go with it have become a habit or encoded in their brain. The way learning to drive in America on the right side of the the road is encoded. And then you go to Great Britain and you have to relearn. So Okay. That makes sense. We're saying narcissist only as a shorthand, so I don't have to repeat that whole paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. That makes sense. (laughs) Um, And I just wanted to point out, we had discussed before that in for our conversation, we're discussing nonviolent narcissists. Absolutely. And maybe another time we can have a whole other episode about the narcissists who are, who are violent. But when we're when in our next um, segment, when we're discussing, you know, the stages of a relationship with a narcissist, we are discussing nonviolent narcissists. I think that's an important thing to point out. Yes. And most narcissists are not violent. They are devaluing. They are unpleasant. They have many traits. They have many traits. So... It's important because we hear the most about people who do the most damage. We hear the least about people who, who are able to contain their narcissism and maybe act it out privately with their mate without violence and just being, well, what most people would find highly unpleasant to live with. Yes. Okay. So something that you've said before, which I was amazing to me because when I've discussed with other people who've had relationships with narcissists, it was like we all were saying the same thing. Like I always say it's like they read from the same handbook. And what you said to me made so much sense. You said, there is a pattern to narcissists and they are highly predictable. Yes. um, That's one of the nice things about narcissism. Um, once you understand the pattern, you can see it with different people, it'll become crystal clear. If, first of all, one part of the pattern is they're very, very status-oriented, and everybody, it's a narcissistic superpower to come into a room and automatically rank everyone in the room quite accurately as to the status according to whatever thing they value, whether it's beauty, money, power, literary ability, they can do it. Then they suck up to those above them, 
those below them or generously condescend to them, uh-huh. fight for dominance with people at about their level. They're extremely competitive. They get into a lot of dominance fights. Um, so the other predictable thing is when they meet you, they're only going to be interested in you for the most part if you can enhance their self-esteem and bring them higher in their status hierarchy. So let's assume a male narcissist is scanning her pictures for their future woman to ask out. They're going to start out picking the woman they can idealize. Gotcha. She is above them. They see her as perfect. They're seeing her from a distance. They're, remember, we are seeing they have a split in them. They can only see perfect or flawed. And flawed is worthless to them because it doesn't get them higher in the dominance hierarchy or support where they are now, unless they have certain other needs like rescuing Cinderella or something. So in general, they a lot of people say narcissists are faking it. Yeah, there are game players. And there are trophy hunters who are just, you know, like Casanovas, and he was one. But there are genuine people who they do think you're perfect. You're not wrong. They idealize you, stage one. Let's say they're serious. They fall madly in love with you. They start naming their children. It all goes very quickly. They start planning their summer with you. They hardly know you. Then they convince you. And they start to relax. As they start to relax, you're going into stage two. They start to notice your very human flaws, that you're not exactly what they had dreamt about. And it could be as simple as you like to wear pants, they like women in skirts. It could be uh, anything at all. Now, since they only have two categories, they could either continue idealizing you and try and move you, but you become a construction project so they can keep idealizing you. So stage two, they start asking you to change things about you or how you do things. And I think it's interesting that in um, one of your blogs, you point out that these suggested changes are quote unquote for your own good. Yes. um, Narcissists have something that's called one-mindedness. And if you've ever talked about any topic, you realize a narcissist assumes there's only one position that's correct, and that's theirs. And any other position isn't seen as valid. They can't imagine things from that other point of view very well. How you could be looking at a mountain from two sides, and on your side of the mountain, you see a house, and on their side, they don't see it. So you say you see a house. They said, there's no house there. (laughs) (laughs) So when it comes to this, they believe if they would be happier, you would be happier. And then to fit into their love script, I call it a love script. It's sort of like women have a wedding script sometimes, what that day is going to be like. Is their wedding going to be rustic when it happens? What kind of dress will they wear? A lot of these guys have a relationship script. The woman is going to look like this. She's going to do that. So now you're in a construction project and a push-pull, and they're going to frame it. If you don't take the, the first suggestions, they will do anything almost to get you to do it, including devalue you. 
Um, they'll also get, try and guilt trip you. Don't you want to make me happy? You told me you love me. What's the big deal? So wear a skirt. Or here, look in the mirror. Can't you see you're out of proportion? If you just put on high heels and you wear a better bra and a shorter skirt, you're going to look much better. I mean, it gets mean. And, and if you don't take those suggestions, then um, what happens? They fe- then you start to be devalued by them and start to go into the flawed category. Once you're in the flawed category, they treat you as anyone else who's below them. Because they- they're no longer holding that rope you were talking about. That's right. They ex- you caught on really quickly. They, dr- they, they don't have object constancy. So now you're on different sides of the fence and narcissists cannot tolerate that. They take it as a criticism and now you're the enemy. And, you know, 20, you're thinking back to the beginning of the relationship when they, when they imagined a whole life with you and they treated you like gold and diamonds and gifts and you're the best thing that ever happened to me. And suddenly they're telling you ugly things about you in nasty language and becoming more and more controlling very often. Or if it's not in their nature to be controlling, they're slowly receding from you and maybe seeing other women. Which, and I thought it was interesting that you called that that first stage when they see you as perfect, that they are chasing the unicorn. So once they figure out that you're not the unicorn, they got to find another unicorn. That's right. And I don't look good with a horn in the middle of my car. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't work with my wardrobe. <laughs> so, so, you know, understand because you, you, people reproach themselves later who don't understand this, that how could uh, he must, how could I have gone for him, him so badly? It felt like real love. Well, you're capable of enduring love despite you hold the rope even though you find out things about him that aren't so nice. He drops the rope. So yes, you had love, but it wasn't enduring. And I think it's important to note that you've also said before that in that chasing the unicorn phase of that relationship, the narcissist does believe that they love you because they see you as this shiny, glimmery, all-perfect object in the beginning. That's right. And the closer they get, the more normal you are. And once they tell you in the beginning, they'll say things like the day that they see you without, if I'm, I'm using these examples, but it could be reversed. If men are listening in, you have the experience with a female. All of a sudden, she thinks you should go to the gym more. <laughs> mm. <laughs> All of a sudden, you're not wearing the right clothes, you know, Two weeks ago, you were the most gorgeous thing on earth and perfect the way you are. And all your little, the, the little pot belly that you had because you're busy working and not, you didn't have time to work out, she used to think was adorable. Now she's trying to get you to the gym and on a diet. So but nothing has, nothing has changed except for the way that the narcissist is viewing you. Yes, exactly. And then if you go along with their changes, you buy yourself some time. Now, and I, I think that that's a good kind of phase into another one of your articles that I thought was 
super fabulous. And it talks about how there are kind of seven main stages of the relationship. And it kind of breaks down those, those three parts that you just spoke about. But you talk about how stage one of a relationship with a narcissist is continuous reward with nothing required in return. Can you talk about that a little, like what that looks like? Yes. Um, they are... And- I actually based this on my experimental psych background with how do you train a rat? And and why do people get trauma bonded to people? And in the beginning, the continuous reinforcement schedule is they compliment you on everything about you. Any little thing you do is perfect. Any little thing you have is perfect. You are ideal. They never met anyone like you. They've never loved anyone like you. So you're basking in the glow. You're thinking this guy is the best or this woman's the best from slice, since sliced bread or the invention in the wheel. They think I'm perfect. They get me. And it just comes. There's no, no um, stop to it. And there isn't any um, there are no reality statements that imply any negatives or any limits to this. Because at that point, they see you as their unicorn. You're the one that's different from everybody else they've ever been with. And the only thing they can think of is sealing the deal. That's gotcha. what they want to marry. They, they, some of them propose on the first date. Now, they don't marry you later on, those very often. <laughs> but I, I've known people, and they're planning their summer with you, and you barely know them, or you, you, haven't, you don't even know who each other is. That very quick. So the continuous reinforcement, stage one. Then you read me stage two and I'll tell you what it is. Okay. So stage two, you call performance rewards. And that's when you're being groomed to do what the narcissist wants you to do. That's right. If you look the right way, you've taken their different things depending upon your background culture. It could be, I, I, when I was younger, I dated some guys where the men spoke and the women had to be quiet or go in the kitchen and talk to each other. I didn't marry that guy, but it was a cultural thing. And, you know, and you're supposed to fit in. Your culture could be feminist. And here you are keeping your mouth shut because only men can talk about that topic. Which is probably very confusing if beforehand you being a feminist was something that the person loved about you. And now all of a sudden go in the kitchen and don't talk while the men are talking. Exactly. And... Um, so now you're, you're, you get praised still, but you're praised like a child is praised for doing the right thing that the parent asks. You've now become a child in their eyes. They have the right to direct you in their mind. You're no different than a child. And I can say from experience, you're wanting to get back to stage one. And so you're, you don't even know that you're being groomed, but it's just kind of better for you to do the things that the narcissist wants you to do because then they're being nice to you again and they're making you feel good again. And also, I'd like to take issue a bit with the word groomed. Okay. Because people who 
our child molesters groom the people they're going to molest, how to get someone prepared and bonded to them. Narcissists are generally not doing that. The grooming is, um, they are not thinking of it that way. They are thinking this is a better thing for you to be doing and you should be wanting to please me. So they're not like having an end in sight other than getting you to please them. Because their way is right. Yes, they're not being, very few narcissists are truly Machiavellian about that. And even the one I knew who was Machiavellian in the sense Machiavelli was, wrote how rulers should rule through fear rather than through love, because you get more from that. (laughs) (laughs) He wrote a book called The Prince many years ago. Uh, before our time. So, so, so this, this thing is they're doing it to you, but they're just doing it to you. They're doing it to you because they think it's the right thing to do. And it's the right thing for them. It's the right thing for the relationship. And they're furious when you don't go along, but when you do go along, you get rewarded. So then you talk about stage three, which is when devaluation begins and rewards decrease. Yes, you'll notice it because you'll start to get uncomfortable. You'll start to feel uneasy in their presence, and you'll find yourself saying things to them that are calculated to get their approval that you know from the past. Now you're trying to win them back over. It's shifted from them trying to win you over because you're a unicorn, and now you've decided they're the unicorn. You want your unicorn back. (laughs) (laughs) And so now you're moving towards them, whereas before you were conditional. Now you you just want to, if you don't like to fight, you're trying to appease them, you're trying to please them. Honey, do you like this or that? Let's go to your favorite restaurant. I don't care where I eat tonight. Suddenly you're very adaptable, if you're adaptable. Mm Mm-hmm. And you've said before that one one way you can kind of tell that maybe you're in um, a relationship with a narcissist is you're having very dramatic emotional situations. And yeah. you're not used to that in your relationships in, in your life. Exactly. Before I knew anything really about narcissism, I dated a fellow and I am not a dramatic person, except I'm an extrovert, but I don't, I'm not a screamer. I'm not, I'm not easily a crier. I certainly not in public. And I once found myself in the New York subway system. He had picked a fight. I didn't know what the fight was about. I was crying on the subway as it pulled out of the station where he was standing because he refused to be in the subway car with me. And I said, this is the oddest thing I've ever been with. What is going on? There's this huge public drama. We might as well be in an opera. And I don't know what the story is or how it happened. That's a warning sign. If you're having these big, dramatic, emotional that kind of fights in public and people are not getting on the subway car like that. That's a pretty, that's a pretty good. They stop the car and ask you to get out. I've had clients who were driving with a narcissist who said, if you don't like what I'm, if you don't shut up now, you can get out right here. And they open the door. So when you hit that point, you're getting threats. Yeah. And that kind of goes along with stage four, which is gaslighting. Yeah. Because then you call them on what they're doing. 
because it's very weird and unpleasant and it, and it crosses a boundary. And they either, gaslighting comes from a stage play, a movie was made from the stage play in which a husband was seeking to drive his wife crazy because there was a monetary and other gain. And he played with the lighting and then she'd see them flicker or go off and he'd say, no, you don't see that. I, you must be crazy. So gaslighting has come to mean when they're trying to get you to doubt your perceptions. Now, they're not doing it for the reasons that this guy, who is probably more psychopathic in the movie did, they're doing it because they can't take the hit to their self-esteem because it'll show them as flawed if they made a mistake. So you're pointing out they made a mistake. They said a bad thing to you or they did a wrong thing and you want an apology. Well, you're not going to get it. Instead, you're going to get a complicated uh Rather stupid, depending on their own. <laughs> you must have imagined it. You're oversensitive. They'll blame you. Um, it was only a joke. Oh, I didn't hear it that way. You must have heard it wrong. Um, I can't believe that you think I'd do that. Mm. So the twist, you know, the truth is being twisted. So in that stage four, you are starting to kind of doubt your perception of reality, you're starting to think that maybe that person is right after all. Well, actually, the more adaptable you are as a human being and the more ni- the nicer you are and the more you're apt to want to please other people, the more self-reflective you are, the better you are for therapy, the worse you are for narcissism, because they'll tell you you have some flaw and you'll reflect on it because you honestly don't want to do the wrong thing. And so if you're an adaptable, self-reflective person who can imagine doing something not perfect, which a narcissist won't imagine for themselves, yeah. then you end up taking all the blame for things. Yeah. So now and they're blaming you and you're blaming yourself. And this goes right into stage five where you say control is established. And you wrote something super interesting. Um, in, in that article, you say, the person mistreating you is now in charge of everything that you are doing. Yes, and a lot of them take over more than talking about your behavior. They may offer to do something that seems like a favor to you. Oh, honey, I know you hate reconciling the checking account or paying the bills. Why don't you give me the uh, information and I'll just do it for you? And in the early stage of the relationship, you feel safe with them. So you you let them take over something. Well, it's really hard to get it back. Or they start telling you um, when to call people or, no, you can't go out at night. Again, you're being treated like a child because you have an obligation to me. Because they need you to be getting up their self-esteem since since they you think they have a lot of self-esteem but they really don't have much at all and basically most of them simply want you in the room if you've talked to an there are some interesting narcissists and those are the ones i like and have as friends where they do things out in the world that are fascinating and i don't mind hearing them talk about it because they're truly accomplishing interesting things but a lot of them are quite boring and they don't know how to have an equal conversation they know how to praise they know how to devalue and they will tell this is they will tell the same stories 
over and over again. And they'll tell them to different people. They'll tell the same joke. After a while, you will catch on that they storytell instead of dialoguing with people. Oh, because a dialogue is back and forth. That's right. And they're just waiting for a break in the conversation. They're bored when anyone else is talking. So there you are. They want you at home with them, but you try and tell them about your day, even if you got a promotion or anything good, unless they can take credit for it. Let's say you got a promotion. Suddenly they're saying, and you wouldn't have gotten that without my advice. They're taking credit. When they might have nothing to do with it. Absolutely not. You've been wor- you were working before you met them and you're working at this job. And they- one woman took credit for her daughters getting the lead in a play and getting so much applause. <laughs> she made the costume for her. Oh, well, that's what did it. That you only succeeded because of me. Wow. So that leads to stage six, which you call the resignation and loss of self. And you say in here that you you just give up on fighting back because it only increases the abuse or mistreatment. Yes. You know, if you have left, see, some people will leave. They they will um, pick themselves up at a certain point and say enough is enough. They usually have more self-confidence to begin with, and they're not as big a people pleaser, and they feel they have other options. But let's imagine you married your narcissist, you have three children with them, you gave up your job because they said, I will support you forever. Now you're, you're stuck. You don't very often, or if you're a little bit meek or you're not sure of your own attractiveness and this person made you feel so valuable, now they've taken away whatever value you had and you're feeling worse than before you met them. And people just get very tired of the fighting. And, and I think that it's important to, to say that this stage six is resignation and loss of self is incredibly depressing and difficult and and sad when you're going through it because like you said, you you used to have fantastic self-esteem or okay self-esteem. You met this person who put you on this pedestal and just kicked the pedestal out from under you. Exactly. And I have seen people have nervous breakdowns, good old-fashioned nervous breakdowns where they couldn't function. They took to their bed. They got super depressed, had to go on anti-depression uh, meds. And it was, it, they had no um, prior history of this. They were functional people. And if you, were, if you weren't so functional to begin with, you're going to be even less functional after this. But I've seen uh, people hang in there and, you know, stay with the person Eventually, they had to leave. You know, eventually it got to the point where I've seen people reconcile five times. And that, and that goes along with your stage seven, which you call the addiction portion of the relationship, the leaving, and then the hoovering. Can you explain all three of those parts of stage seven? Addiction first. Sure. sure. <laughs> well, um, here you, no one who is normal is going to do all that courtship unicorn stuff with you for very long. They're going to be more normal. They're not going to be so focused on 
sealing the deal with you, they'll be likely to take the time to find out what you're going to have some uncertainty. So people get addicted to that early stage where this particular person supplied everything that they ever wanted said to them or done for them. Because it is like a high when someone loves you that much. Oh my gosh, you're on your first date or your third date. This person loves you so much. You're better than any person they ever met. They they would marry you today if they had the chance. How can that not make you feel good? Exactly. Until you see it as a warning sign, it's a red flag because they don't know you. So when I work with narcissists, I work on the opposite end because they're disappointed to find you have flaws. And I say, do not overpromise when you see them as the unicorn. So for the person who's on the other end, they want the unicorn stage back. So then, so you're feeling the addiction and then you're leaving them. Yeah. So what happens is eventually people, if they have any strength, any financial ability to support themselves, even when they don't, sometimes they take the kids and leave because the atmosphere is poisonous. And if you're single, it's easier to leave and you might take up with other people, but the other people, if they're more normal, um, aren't giving you what you got in that other stage. Now, you're, the person who told you you were so flawed and awful, the further away he gets from you or she gets from you, and the more they're disappointed with other people, very often they will come back to you. They hmm. will, they will re- do something like, uh, like here, here's the, the modern version. They like your Instagrams again. Oh, so it's not like they're first reaching out to you with a huge love bomb right at the beginning. No, they're testing the waters. Most of them are are out there and they left devaluing you so badly. They behaved so horribly to you that they're going through, usually they're going through their entire address book, contacts online to think about who can I, I'm a, they're, they're, it's late at night and they're horny. <laughs> the rear view mirror, you look pretty damn good. <laughs> okay? So you might get like this late at night text, um, you know, hi, like one word, just to see. If you answer that text, it gets a little more continuous. And they start feeding you nice things like, oh, the biggest mistake I made was leaving you, etc. But it could start with, I've seen a lot of people start with the online social media. Suddenly you're not blocked anymore. Suddenly they're liking your Instagrams. Suddenly you get a text, you get something on your birthday. They They see your birthday and important things like that as ways to rationalize reconnecting with you in a way that you'll accept. And that that also kind of um, is an armor against you saying like, don't stop texting me. But if they can say like, I was just being nice and texting you because it was your birthday to them, that's rationalizing any, maybe any possible slight that you could give back to them. 
Exactly. Or they could even be asking about your mother who they hate. I mean, (laughs) pretext that makes them into a good guy and gives them a rationale. Uh, You know, they saw on your Facebook page, you got a promotion or something. But I, I, I see this like progression from if they have patience, some guys are recyclers. And what that means is they like the familiar they have maybe three to five people who they go back to. And I wrote a paper on that for psychology today on the recycling type, because I'm very familiar with them because it makes women crazy. And sometimes when there's a multiple women involved, what happens is anytime they see the woman is flawed, they just go on to the next woman. And by the time they get to the third woman, you're beginning to look good again. That it, makes a lot of sense. So it, so you could be recycled by the narcissist several times and probably in the, the love bombing, recycling, all of these women, they were nothing compared to you. you were, they were thinking about you the whole time. Yes, I compared them all to you and I realized what I lost you know, over-the-top romantic stuff like that uh, for them, you know, because when they when you were living with them every day or you were, they got to know you, they weren't being over-the-top. But now they're back to that stage one. And it's informally, I had to learn these words. I knew the professional words for it. But on Quora and on online, people call it hoovering, like the Hoover vacuum cleaner to stuff <laughs> back in. So they're hoovering you. Yeah, they're getting you back. You, you've gotten, you've managed to get away a little bit and they need to get you back. That's right. And it gives them a feeling of security knowing that the minute that you turn into the person they don't want, they can go to one of the others. Wow. I've met people where the other people figured out who they were through Instagrams and online sites and FaceTimes and they talk to each other. And compare I notes. One guy who two of the women accepted that he had three women, plus his sister. When, when none of the women were pleasing him, he'd go stay with his sister for a while. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So when we're talking about this, and this, like I've, like I've said, it's like they all read the same handbook. Since there's a pattern and we can predict what narcissists are going to do, Let's say we have someone listening today that is like, oh my God, all of this stuff seems super duper familiar to me. This is what's happening in my life. And again, this is a non-violent narcissist. What would you suggest to those people who are dealing with the non-violent narcissist in their life? Well, the first thing, and you may want to stay with them. Some people want to stay with them because they have other traits that they like or they remember the early stages. So I've written some papers they can get on psychology today, but I'll give you the .com. First of all, you need to be realistic. The reason you're never getting an apology is because you're never getting an apology. <laughs> so we, no, you you're, you're not going to get one. So if that's the goal then that's not the person for you because that narcissist is never going to do it because of what we talked about before. It's just too much of admitting that maybe they're not this totally perfect, wonderful person. 
And that means they're not going to process what happened yesterday with you. What you can get are two things. You can get a do-over in the morning, and you can get a reparative gesture. Women have gotten women have gotten more jewelry from narcissists as reparative gestures than anybody ever had an apology. <laughs> <laughs> so if you own a jewelry store, you're going to make a lot more money from a narcissist than the apology store. That's right. And the reparative gesture could be, an, if say it's a, a, a female narcissist. She knows what type of lingerie guys you want to see. She's wearing it. She says, I have a surprise for you tonight. That's a reparative gesture. If you accept the reparative gesture, whether you're a woman accepting jewelry or being taken to your favorite restaurant or even getting to go see your parents with him, which he, you know he never wanted to do, it's a reparative gesture. That's their version of an apology. If you don't get a reparative gesture, you're, wor- you're much worse off. You know, the ones that... The, the nicer ones, the ones that want to keep you, that are capable of a longer-term relationship, which some of them are, they will do reparative gestures. And that reparative gesture, in their mind, kind of like makes the slate clean. That's right. And you can always do a do-over. Here you have this terrible fight the night before because they're in a bad mood for something that has nothing to do with you probably, but you triggered it. And they're talking to you like like you would be talking to someone who you were never going to see again and you hate them. Then they wake up the next morning, a good night's sleep, they're in a good mood. They turn to you and they say something sweet. And you want to smack them. (laughs) And that would be so confusing, too. How can last night you're telling me I'm a horrible, fat human, and now today I'm wonderful and you love me so much? Yes. And so one of the things is take that at face value and move on. You're not going to get them to process. Um, But you you can... Here's something that I found works during a fight. I looked for stuff to de-escalate fighting because confronting a narcissist never works. Telling them they're wrong doesn't work. Because they Um, truly do not believe that they are wrong. They have to not believe they're wrong or they will feel like they hate themselves. Like they would be like one of those castles made of playing cards <laughs> like you know that you if you blow on it it all goes over so what you can use is we language for example you're in the middle of a fight because you said something without intending to trigger him at all and he got offended and then he says something to you that's 10 times as nasty and you're off and running you can say you know we could do better than this don't blame them It could be 100% their fault, but you can use we language. You know, I was thinking we can do better than this. Let's do a do-over. I wish I had said to you, bup, 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 something nice, and you're doing a do-over. A lot of narcissists can accept we language and do-overs, where they can't accept you did something wrong. They can't accept we can do better. Because in the saying we, you are also taking responsibility for the problem. Even if the problem was 100% him, you are saying we, so he feels like you are included in the problem. Now, you know you're with someone that's going to be really a problem if they don't accept that. And they say, what do you mean we? It's all your fault. Oh, goodness. 
So, you know, there are narcissists who can have long-term relationships with people and ones that are intolerable. And if you're smart, you'll get out. Okay. These are tests of not their narcissism, but their degree of capacity to actually be in a relationship with someone in which there there are narcissists who have a lot of money or run companies and all their friends are not really friends. They employ friends, people who can say no to them. Oh, gotcha. So if you find that the new person in your life, the only friends they have are people they pay. Bad sign. That is a sign if, if they have no friends, there are, there are sociable narcissists who can maintain rela- friend relationships. They're better than the ones that can't. That's a great point. Better in the sense that you're likely to have, a, you won't ever have a normal intimate life with a narcissist. I'm telling you the truth now. But some people don't need, or th- some people, the other characteristics of what the person is providing are sufficient once they understand the situation. So the person has to bring something to the table, is what I say, that you value enough to give up the, that relaxed feeling you get with, from somebody who can't turn on you in a minute. Yeah. Wow. Dr. Greenberg, you've given me so much to think about. And I think that really, you've, you've really highlighted what it's like to be in a relationship with a nonviolent narcissist. You've defined it well. You've given us some really good information about what to do if you are in a relationship with a nonviolent narcissist. And again, we can, we're, I'm definitely going to ask, beg you to be on this podcast again because I just love talking to you. Um, and I want to just reiterate that you have all of these fantastic resources on Cora.com on Psychology Today, your book on Amazon. And I'm going to link all of those things in the show notes so the listeners can can get in touch with you and, and read all that you have to say because it, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and we are so lucky to have you at just helping us through this. Thank you so much, Dr. Greenberg. Thank you so much, Kendall. And I think you're doing a public Yay. service. I love working with you. Oh, thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. I'd like to give a huge thank you to Dr. Eleanor Greenberg for being on the podcast today. I learned a ton and I definitely had a lot of fun chatting with you. So again, thank you so much for volunteering your time to us today. If you would like to learn more from Dr. Greenberg, she makes it really easy. Um, The first thing you could do is purchase her book. Um, That book is called Borderline Narcissistic and Schizoid Adaptations, The Pursuit of Love, Admiration, and Safety. There is a link um, to the Amazon page for that book in the show notes. You could also check out her free blog called Understanding Narcissism on psychologytoday.com, which I also have a link to. And she has over a thousand posts on these topics on Quora.com, which again is in the show notes. Um, If you'd like an educational consultation with Dr. Greenberg, she does do some of those online sessions. um, So you can contact her for more information about that. 
If you are in an unsafe relationship and you need help, please dial the National Domestic Violence Hotline. That number is 1-800-799-7233. Again, the number for the National Domestic Violence Hotline is one 800 799 safe. 